quick heads up about this episode of the best kind. I'll be discussing mental health and some unsuccessful suicide attempts, but it all turns out great in the end. If you're sensitive about these topics, please listen with caution or feel free to skip this episode. Hey, thanks for checking out the best kind today. I'm Josh Morgan, and I'm glad you stopped by because this is sort of a special episode. I usually talk with Baltimore's helpers on the best kind about their journeys and kindness just so that we can look for little things in their stories that we can all kind of pick out that maybe we can use to make our lives better together. But I wanted to use this episode to talk about my journey with mental health. I've learned a few things over the last few years about how to love myself more. And I wanted to share those with you in case you can use them if you wanted to learn how to love yourself a little more, too. Let's get into it. <laughs> the Best Kind is on YouTube if you'd like to watch the video version. Or if you'd rather listen to the audio version, you can check that out wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe for new episodes at bestkindpod.com. And you can sign up for the email newsletter while you're there. I'll be using that newsletter to share updates from our guests on The Best Kind. And also, I'll be announcing when new episodes drop. Uh, that's usually the 15th of every month. So check out bestkindpod.com to sign up. But for now, uh, just put this podcast on in the background of whatever you're doing and enjoy the show. So as I mentioned in the intro, I don't have a guest this month. Instead, I thought I would talk about mental health. And the reason I wanted to talk about mental health is because I consider mental illness, mental health, those sorts of topics, that's been the primary struggle of my adult life. So just by example, uh, in 2018 and 2019, I attempted suicide twice. Uh, those were probably the worst years of my life. And it's interesting because the flip side of that, is 2020 and 2021, as I'm recording this, those have been the best years of my life. And I put in a lot of work to kind of make this complete 180 in how I see myself, how I view mental illness, how I take care of my emotions. And I thought I would share with you, um, since I've made such a dramatic turnaround, maybe there's some things in my journey through mental illness that you could use, uh, just in case, you know, maybe you could use some help or someone, you know, might could use some help. So I think one way to illustrate my mood rather than just tell you about it is to show you a chart. So I used a journal app to track my mood beginning in March 2018. And then I, I kept the record of my mood, uh, not every day, but most days, uh, all the way through this month as I'm recording December. So on this chart, uh, I, I ranked my mood on a scale of one to five. So one was the lowest. And those were days when I was completely suicidal. And then on the other end of that scale is five, where I was calm and maybe even happy. Happiness isn't the goal, by the way. Happiness is relative. For me, I focus more on being calm in my core self. And I'll talk more about what core self means in just a little bit. Growing up in my household, my father inherited a long lineage of alcoholism and took out his frustrations on uh me, my mother, and then I have two siblings, a younger brother and a younger sister. And we all still have, you know, effects from different things we went through. 
Uh, and you know, the type of abuse changed over time. Like there was a period where, uh, my family, you know, we couldn't go anywhere without my dad, except the grocery store. So we would go spend long periods at the grocery store. Um, but then there were other periods where my father was like, okay, I guess we need money because he was on disability and we didn't get a lot of money. So my mother was allowed to work, but then she would come home with a paycheck and he would drink all the money. And, you know, we really struggled because of that. Not to mention, you know, just, he was so volatile all the time. Like I, I really dreaded just being at home. One therapist, uh, that I spoke to years ago, actually more than one therapist, uh, compared my situation growing up with like, I had to sort of build a protective shell around myself in my mind to protect me. And that became my model for navigating through life for the longest time. Like I've been what I would consider to be like an extreme introvert. And yeah, I, I just kind of went with the flow with things. If I ever got into conflicts with people, I totally did whatever I had to do to placate them. Like I was a total doormat. And as I progress through my adult life, uh, as this chart starts to show, like, you know, I, I, I have things I, I accomplished in my life. Like I, I went through college and, you know, got, got a master's degree and, and that sort of thing and started a professional career, moved to Baltimore in 2016. And I guess this chart in uh, starting in 2018, uh, that's where I started to kind of feel the stress of being sort of a professional in a world that I was never really trained to handle, uh, like mentally, emotionally. I, I mean, I never really felt like an adult. I always felt like a little boy who was hiding from people that might be upset with me or angry with me for reasons I didn't even know. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Like I've, I've done a lot of therapy about this and, and have recovered since, but the point of this chart, going back to this example is, you know, I started really feeling the severe effects of this, of, of my mental struggle, 2018 and 2019, I went through a couple of jobs and, you know, started having serious doubts about my ability to support myself. So there was a, a case where my wife and I bought a house, uh, July, 2018. And, you know, it was the first house we ever owned here in Baltimore city. And, uh, in our old neighborhood, we had rented a house and we had some nice neighbors. And one of those neighbors was a nice older lady who knew we were moving and offered to give me some plants to plant in my yard. Um, kind of like as a going away present. And she had a yard full of plants, but, she was just like offering me everything. Like you want this, you want this. And it got so overwhelming that I had to go into my house and just like, I sat on the floor and just cried. Like I, I, I couldn't even make the decision. Like, sure. I'll take that. No, I don't want that. Like I, I couldn't even stand up for myself enough to turn away a free gift. Just be like, like hold boundaries. I, I just felt like completely useless. And I just, I was just like sobbing and, and my wife was there trying to like, you know, comfort me. And, she, and I'll talk more about my wife later. She's, she's someone that definitely played her part in my recovery. But like I said, there's a flip, like where I just did a 180 
in my outlook, I put in a lot of work and this chart shows, you know, beginning 2020, 2021, I started having way more good days, good days, uh, like where I was calm, where I wasn't overwhelmed by my emotions. And you can see the frequency on the chart. Like it just, uh, far fewer bad days and like far more good days. So I wanted to talk in this episode about how I got to that point where I went from hating myself, not being comfortable on my own skin to loving myself, being proud of myself and having a sense of hope for the future. So before I share anything else, I need to stop and make a few disclaimers just to kind of set some guidelines here. So I am not a professional mental health therapist. I do not have any training in mental health counseling. Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist or any of those things. I'm just someone who has spent literally hundreds of hours in therapy. Um, one-on-one with individual therapists. I've been in a psychiatric institution, both in a day hospital setting and as an inpatient. Um, I just want to share what has worked for me. And I recognize that what worked for me in my circumstances will not work for everyone. And I can't stress that enough. It, I had a lot of lucky breaks. I had a lot of people that came out of the woodwork to kind of help me. And uh, I also want to acknowledge that it took a lot of work to make that 180 in my mood that I talked about. So I I don't want to minimize like by my, by sharing my story, I don't want to minimize anybody else's circumstances or the severity of what anybody else may be going through. But I also want to say that, I I don't think that people should feel competitive about their struggles. Like, well, my life is so much harder than yours or anything like that. No, every, every person goes through their own struggles and every person has their own set of triggers, stimuli, criteria that will help them as individuals. Everybody deserves to be loved in some way, even if that means, you know, having to love them from a distance. And everyone deserves to be taught how to love themselves. And I, I firmly believe that. So those are my disclaimers. This is why I'm sharing what I'm sharing. Just kind of take take everything. Uh, if you can use it, that's fine. But just be aware, I, I'm not a professional and this may or may not work for you. So what is self-love? What What are we talking about here when I say I've learned to love myself? Well, I can only speak for me, but uh, the first thing I think of when I think of loving myself is I don't hate myself. I mean, it seems pretty obvious, but uh, instead now I'm able to appreciate things that I actually like about myself and that I even enjoy about, you know, kind of inhabiting this person that I am. So in the past, when I would think about these kinds of things, like if there was something I accomplished or if there was a skill that I had that I, that I might've felt particularly proud of, I would always think in my head, yeah, but, and then insert some sort of excuse for why that accomplishment or that skill wasn't valuable. Like I would do whatever I could to diminish that thing. So I would think lesser of myself. And I don't do that nearly as much now because I have learned to appreciate those positive things about myself, that it's okay to love myself. 
The second thing I think of when I talk about loving myself is that I now have self-confidence. So, I mean, there have been little flashes in my life where I've been confident about certain things. I mean, otherwise I wouldn't have, you know, built the life around myself that I have now. But uh, for me, I I see self-confidence as a step up from actively hating myself every day. Like I actually believe in myself. If I, if I, see something that I want to pursue, or if I think something is important enough to me to act upon, I'm, I'm able to convince myself now way more frequently than I used to that, you know, I, I not only can I do it, but I will do it. Um, the third thing that comes with having enough confidence is being able to do things now that I might fail at. And this is one I'm, I'm still working on, but you know, I used to like, uh, I guess because of my upbringing, being in an abusive household where I never wanted to draw attention to myself, I, 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 I don't know. I just have a, a tough time practicing this because like, you know, growing up, if I ever took initiative on something or if I had an idea that didn't work out, like I, it would be negative attention and, you know, I get punished for it somehow. And Speaking up too, like I mentioned that I was an extreme introvert, like just even speaking up, like starting conversations, reaching out to people more. I, that's, I, I mean, I, I've done that a little in my adult life, but I'm so much more comfortable now than I used to be like just basic social skills, basic life skills. I, I feel like I'm so much better. And the, the fourth thing that I think uh, reflects more self-love in my life is that I feel more in control of my personality, uh, my emotions and like my life in general. I don't feel trapped inside of this person that I don't like anymore because I like this person now. I don't feel like I should expect the worst out of my life, which uh, often when I accomplish things in the past, it would kind of be in spite of myself, or at least that's what I thought. It's like, Oh, I, I got married. Well, I mean, why is she with a loser like me? Oh, I, I went to college. You know, I, I and I didn't mention this before. I got a GED, uh, basically dropped out of high school, but now I have a master's degree and I'm working you know, in the career that I have. That's ridiculous. But, you know, the whole time I was doing those things, it's just like, uh, well, I mean, you got by that, you know, you're still worthless. But now I'm able to look back and kind of empathize with my past self and, you know, be proud of how cool some of that stuff was that I've done. So uh, another thing that has stuck out with me, and I mentioned before that I, I've been through a lot of therapy was, so in, in the period when I was in the psychiatric uh, hospital um, in 2018, during the the worst, like after my first suicide attempt, I, uh, you know, there, when you're in a, a setting like that, there are classes during the day that you attend that are related to different topics about mental health care. And, you know, I don't remember all of those classes because it kind of becomes a blur, especially, you know, in the mindset that I was in at the time. But, you know, there's still little bullet points that stick out for me. And one of those bullet points that, that I remember uh, from one of those classes um, was you can change your personality. And that was like a revelation to me because I just assumed that I was stuck being the person that I grew up being and that was who I was going to be the rest of my life. But in reality, I, I learned, you know, from that sentiment that 
you know, I could take control of things that I didn't like about myself. And man, that was such a game changer. Like it, it, it gave me more power over my own life and it, it gave me a sense of agency that I didn't have before. And it, it goes back to confidence. Like it gave me a sense of confidence about myself and my ability to change things. And I, and I didn't feel so helpless anymore. So all of that, like those things, like I don't hate myself. I have confidence. I, I I'm not afraid of failure as much and I feel more in control of my life. Those are the things that I would characterize for me anyway is uh, what's changed since I've learned to love myself. Now that I've explained what the concept of self-love looks like, at least from my perspective, I wanted to talk about the things that helped me make that turn from actively hating myself to actively loving myself. I spent some time taking some notes and kind of organized my thoughts and I've narrowed down the list of factors that kind of played in me recovering from such a dark period in my life. Uh, I narrowed it down to five things. So the first thing is something uh, as a specific model of therapy that I call self-therapy, or I've heard it referred to as self-therapy. This is also known uh, professionally as internal family systems therapy or IFS. Uh, I work with one therapist in particular who helped me learn this model, and she recommended a manual on the subject. I have a copy. It's called Self-Therapy by Dr. Jay Early. You could probably get a copy at your local library, like through an interlibrary loan, or wherever you get your books. Um, I Again, I'm not a professional therapist, but I have spent a lot of time uh, working through the kind of the criteria of this model. and. This is, I'll share my understanding of uh, IFS and how it helped me. So according to IFS, we're all born with a core sense of self that uh, it embodies many of the virtues that we as humans have valued in one another kind of across cultures, across history, across time and space. These include what Dr. Early refers to as the four C's. So the four C's, and I even took the time to memorize this uh, when I was going through the training, but it's um, calm, compassion, curiosity, and connectedness. Uh, the fourth one connected this, I'll, I'll explain more. So connectedness, uh, it can refer, connectedness can refer to a few different things, but it, here in IFS, it mostly refers to a core self that's connected to different parts of our personalities. That's, that's where the idea of an internal family comes from is a core self. And then like a, it's parroting a bunch of different inner parts uh, of our personality. So many of these inner parts uh, emerge in response to events that we experience in our lives, particularly traumatic events. And these parts develop uh, their own characteristics and they develop perspectives that they can be positive or negative, but usually if you're going to seek therapy for something, it's a negative experience. Like it's, it's an emotion uh, that you don't desire to experience anymore. But I, you know, I learned through IFS that because of having so many severe traumatic experiences growing up, you know, I had a lot of parts that would take over my personality from my core self 
And it would happen whenever I would experience events that would remind me of emotions that I often felt in the past, like just being afraid, being anxious, being depressed. Like these were all things that I experienced in childhood. And I had these different versions of myself that, you know, in therapy I identified were created in specific moments in time. And these parts because they never found resolution to whatever the thing was that triggered them into being like, they were still a part of my personality. So whenever I felt something like a, a, a symptom of my mental illness that I didn't want coming on, that was a part of my personality that was overwhelming my core self. And the work of IFS is to try to help those parts find what they need to heal and to be at peace. And, you know, in talking with these parts, like it's a little bit of a a role play exercise, especially if you do this with a professional therapist, where if, if you're, if you identify a part of your personality that's overwhelming you and you no longer want it to overwhelm you, you have to recognize that it's playing a positive role in, in your life by trying to protect you. But the problem is that part that may be overwhelming you is working on outdated stimuli. Like it it has information from the past that may no longer be relevant. Like I would, I don't know the last time I experienced a traumatic event, but you know, I, I still had these parts of my personality that believe that I was always in danger and it, it was, they were never informed otherwise. So they were just constantly acting to like, take over and and try to protect me. Like even, even when I was suicidal, like I had these parts, like when these parts were suicidal, I guess the positive role was they didn't want me to be in pain anymore. And I mean, that's, that's like a a crazy way to look at it, but that, I, I mean, it's, it's sort of a positive effect. They were trying to, it was, I was going through so much pain that they wanted to remove me from that pain. So one example of a part that I I spent a lot of time with uh, was a younger version of myself. And I'll call this version like little Josh, (laughs) uh, just for lack of a better name. But little Josh was about five or six years old. And I have a specific memory of little Josh standing in the backyard of an old apartment house that we lived in, um, my family and I, back when I was an only child. And there was like this grassy, like open court kind of area that in our backyard that we shared with other apartment houses. And this memory I have, there were two women that were like standing on the other side of this courtyard and they were angry with me about something like they were yelling at me. And I, I couldn't figure out why, like even in therapy, like all these years later, trying to reflect back, like I, I don't know what I did to upset them. Like maybe I actually legitimately did something to upset them, but I, I, I don't remember. But what I do remember is having this sense that I had done something wrong just by being there. Like there was something about my personality that like I, I had some flaw as a person and I carried that memory as a part of me, as my part of my personality for all these years, like so many decades. And I've only recently learned how to help that part heal and move on. Um, 
My therapist helped me identify that this was one of the earliest instances I could remember where I, I felt like a bad person just for being me. And little Josh, like I said, he never got, he never got closure for that. And that's been how I've handled conflict over the years. Like if someone, if I've been in a situation where I felt like someone has been upset with me, or if I was standing in the way of something they wanted, I would just roll over and say, okay, you know, whatever you need, you know, I'm, I'm the one that's wrong here. And, you know, through therapy, I, I identified that I felt really ashamed like just me being around being alive was an inconvenience for other people. But IFS gave me the structure to help little Josh heal from that emotional pain. So in, in doing so and going through that process it helped me in the present to heal too, because when I, I helped that inner part, that little Josh, when I helped him get what he felt like he needed to kind of move on from that situation, it helped me feel more valuable as a person. Like I, I could relate to little Josh and what he went through and I felt empathy and I wanted to help little Josh and, and kind of separating myself from that. Like I, I was able to see myself in the present and, and have empathy and want to help me too. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of connectedness. Like that, that fourth C that I talked about in IFS our inner parts, they become a family that form our personalities. And when we're able to relax ourselves and take control of our thoughts and our actions as our core selves, you know, the, the calm, compassionate, curious, connected core self, that's where we're able to be more supportive and, you know, able to navigate life's challenges together with these other parts. And remember, these positive, like these, these inner parts that make up our personalities aside from our core selves, they ultimately play positive roles. So part of the work of IFS is figuring out how to help those parts that are playing positive roles. Like how can they play another role in our life? So with little Josh, for example, uh, the the role that we identified little Josh would be happy with would be, you know, if he kept that that sense of curiosity and wonder and like, you know, like you imagine a kid having before they're <laughs> corrupted by various influences in the world. So like him being that uh, to me helps me, ha- you know, keep up that sense of curiosity and other things like you know, we talk about having inner children and I guess it's sort of like having an inner child and it's just a more positive way to help think about my past and as well as myself in the present. And, you know, as I explain this, like I I understand IFS may sound complicated because I know it took me a while to kind of get the, the basic principles or the basic theory behind IFS, but it gave me two concepts And those lead into the second thing that helped me love myself. The second thing that helped me was a positive reason to live because there have been several moments in my life where I at least thought about or came close to trying to kill myself. And the, the common reason I always thought of that stopped me was, you know, if I kill myself, I'd be hurting my family. And over time, that reason becomes negative 
if it's used often enough, because it, it just made me feel guilty. Like it, I, I felt guilty for the way I was feeling and then like feeling guilty about staying alive just so I wouldn't hurt my family. Like it just fed in, like it was negative feedback that made my uh, emotional state worse. And it wasn't until recently that I, I found another reason uh, through IFS and that reason was me. And I, I went for so long thinking that I was this horrible person, that I had major flaws I couldn't change. Uh, but the idea of, you know, that concept of a core self, that really resonated with me. And I, I started thinking like, oh, you mean I'm, I'm not this terrible person I always thought I was? Like, deep down, I'm really capable of being calm and, and compassionate and curious and connected and all these other things that I want to be. Like, that's the kind of person I want to be. But you know, having before that concept, I didn't know all that, but it encouraged me to rethink how I saw myself. It, it was much easier having that sense of core self to look back at the different inner parts of me that I always felt like guilty or embarrassed by in the past, like little Josh. Uh, you know, I, it was easy to think of like those past versions of myself as people with intrinsic value. You know, that's something I, I've talked about before on this podcast. Like I see people like everybody in the world has intrinsic value to me, no matter like what horrible stuff they're up to. But I, I couldn't extend that same kindness to myself. I just I was never taught how. But, you know, little Josh has become sort of a visual representation for me, like of even though it's even though it's a part of like an inner inner part of my personality it helps remind me of what my core self is capable of. Like I, I don't necessarily treat little Josh as like an imaginary friend, but I, I do compare how I would treat little Josh if he was here in the present, making some of the same decisions that I make sometimes like, uh, you know, obsessing over mistakes was is something I still work through. But, you know, if little Josh were here and he made a mistake, I would, I would be patient with him. I, I would try to like show him the right way to do whatever it is, or, or I'd be here to listen to him. Like it, it's just a different way of thinking about who I am as a person and being able to project like that. It, it's, it's allowed me to appreciate, you know, different things about my personality, like this little family of parts that I have in my head that you know, I, I wasn't trained to recognize before. I mean, like, how cool is it that little Josh got married or that, you know, he went to college or published research or started interviewing kind people just because he, he wanted to, like he had the courage to to do some of these things. And then I stopped to think like, well, wait a minute, you know, that's, I did that in the present. Like, I mean, that's, that's pretty cool. And there, and there's no longer like a, yeah, but, and some excuse to, for why those things aren't cool. It's like, no, if little Josh can do that, if he grew up to do that, then, you know, I should be proud of that too, you know, present day, Josh. So it having that positive sense of self, that sense of self-confidence, like I, I never really had that before. And it gave me the positive push I needed to keep going. It, I never longer felt guilty because I couldn't, you know, take the final step and kill myself. It was, well, no, wait a minute. Like you're, you still have a lot of cool stuff you can do and you'd be missing out. And I tell myself that when I look back on 
like I mentioned 2018 and 2019 were my worst years because of mental illness. It's like if I had succeeded in killing myself, I would miss out on, have missed out on 2020 and 2021, which had been the best years of my life. So uh, just having that positive reason has has been such a difference maker for me. Um, And I I have hope for the future and I want to keep doing cool stuff. The third thing that helped me build the emotional strength to love myself was having people in my life who cared about me and were patient with me when I, I wasn't able to give that to myself. I, I mean, that, that does cover a lot of people. I've had a lot of people in my life that I cross paths with that have helped me in different ways. First and foremost would be my wife, Sarah. We both started our relationship roughly 14 years ago as I'm recording this. Then we both knew that we had mental health issues, but when you get into a relationship like this, you can't really predict how severe a situation might get. You know, things, you just have to take them on together as they happen. And I would say in my case, particularly in 2016, when we first moved to Baltimore up until, you know, 2019, when I, I made my second suicide attempt, she she was always there for me. She talked me out of so many panic attacks. She encouraged me to go to the local psychiatric hospital when I made my first suicide attempt. And she visited me every day I was in the psychiatric hospital, which just blows me away. And what will always amaze me is that she could have easily said, this is too much. I'm I'm done. I'm out. And she didn't do that. I know I'm very fortunate in that way because I can just imagine a lot of other partners would have, you know, they would have bailed. So I'll always be grateful that she loved me even during those times when I couldn't understand why she did. But now I do understand why she loved me because I love myself. So the fourth thing that helped me get my mental health under control was the right medication. And sticking to it, that sticking to it part was important, I learned. Uh, So I was someone that didn't want to believe in medication. I never liked the idea of it. And I remember telling one therapist years ago, uh, I kind of regret this now, but at the time I said, you know, people have been anxious and depressed for thousands of years and they never had medication. But, you know, looking back, uh, that's sort of like saying people got infections for thousands of years and they didn't have antibiotics. It's like medic medication was made to help people deal with symptoms that they otherwise can't cope with or control on their own. Um, and things like antidepressants are one example. So like even with the right therapy model, even, you know, with this new appreciation for life and a, and a supportive group of people behind me, my body was still trained to respond to stressful situations uh, and with these old processes that I no longer needed. And that's where medication came in because it, it helped me interrupt a lot of those old neurochemical things that were happening that again, like my inner parts uh, they were working with outdated stimuli and I had to work to correct those. Um, the tricky part with the medication piece was it took me a while to find the right ones. Uh, I probably tried 
within a very short amount of time, most of the major medications on for antidepressant and such on the American market anyway. Um, but you know, I, I did eventually find two that worked for me. Um, and now I'm down to like a mild dose, kind of like a maintenance dose. So I'm down from two medications to one and I, I'm, you know, I'm in a comfortable position with that. I, I no longer need the two because I've gotten everything else in order. And, you know, tied up in talking about medication is finding the right psychiatric practitioner. It's just as important to me anyway as finding the right therapist because not every psychiatrist and not every therapist is going to be the right fit. So you have to shop around a little bit. And I, I was fortunate that I switched to one at one of my lowest points who saw the urgency of my suicidal ideation. And I said, okay, let's, you need to try this one. Let's see what it does for you. And she, she was in you know constant communication with me. And because of her kindness, she was able to help me, uh, you know, prescribe me something that got, uh, got my emotions stabilized and that allowed me to get them under control. And, you know, I, she's still my regular psychiatrist and I'm super grateful for her. Um, but yeah, medication made a big difference and I haven't always wanted to admit that. Once I had the other four things in place that helped me learn to love myself, I was able to find a fifth thing and that was a commitment to take care of myself. So before I found all of these other things, I often well, I mean, to begin with, I didn't know how to take care of myself, but even if I had, I may not have felt capable or even worthy of being taken care of. Like emotional management was just something I, I wasn't familiar with, even though I understood the concept, I, I was never trained in it. I, and I like to think of my experience with my mental illness as someone who's covered from addiction or at least my exposure and impression of what it's like to be addicted. So I, I've noticed over the course of my life that there have been uh, various people who taken their addictions and their, so their related sobriety seriously. And they'll say things like, well, you know, I've been 17 years sober, or, I mean, even the other day I saw somebody say, um, I I've been sober for 33 years. And when I was younger, didn't know any better. I would often wonder, well, why is it important for people to observe anniversaries like that? If the thing that they're talking about was so long in the past, but you know, I, I understand with addiction, it takes a lifetime of diligence to keep in check because, you know, if somebody was an alcoholic 25 years ago, they can't necessarily pick up a drink today and, and have, you know, be all cured. They, they may face the same problems that they left behind 25 years ago when they stopped drinking. So in my mind, I think my approach to mental health will probably have to be similar because it's going to take a lifetime of emotional management for me to keep my deepest, darkest thoughts in check. And, you know, luckily I've, I've accumulated a skill set, like an emotional skill set over the last few years. That's made the process a lot easier. So uh, to kind of transition to the next section, I have two of those that I think have been the most important to helping me manage my emotions. 
probably the most useful skill I've learned over the last few years, and it still takes a lot of practice. I'm never going to be perfect at it, has been the ability to recognize when an intrusive thought is in my head, especially if it's just repeating over and over. Uh, It's usually associated, these intrusive thoughts are usually associated with some emotion that I don't want, like fear or anger that's not appropriate. Not that fear or anger are bad. Those can be useful at times, but you know, if you find them in the middle of a work day or if I'm like out, you know, running errands or something and I'm feeling all these weird emotions, I don't want them. But the trick has been learning how to recognize them so that I can get ahead of them and find what the root cause might be. So I'm able I'm able now to identify specific inner parts of my personality that might be trying to take over because I've done a lot of that work in therapy. And you know, being able to recognize that these parts are trying to take over is is huge because it, it gives me a sense of power in my core self. Like I can I can help mediate and uh, even mentor these other parts at times. And, you know, before when I would get overwhelmed by these other parts, that's where I had to obsess over like criticizing myself. And that's where I would have panic attacks. And then, you know, even worse in some cases where I would spiral into, you know, wanting to kill myself just to stop the pain. And it's my job as, you know, me and the president in my core self to, to help manage those parts and try to recognize, you know, if I'm having some emotion that I don't want, it's like, okay, what part is in trouble and, and how can I help it? That's how I see the the ongoing work of my emotional management anyway, kind of informed by that IFS model of therapy. Another skill I picked up along the way that's been super helpful for me in my emotional management has been uh, learning how to create space between my emotions and my core sense of self. If, if I start to feel an emotion coming on that is uncomfortable, or maybe even if a situation is particularly stressful, if I feel like it's going to overwhelm me, um, I, you know, I have to stop what I'm doing and deal with it. I can't ignore it. You know, in the short term, ignoring something, you know, just telling yourself to buck up or telling yourself to suck it up and kind of powering through, like I, I get sometimes you have to do that. Like, you know, depending on whatever the situation is, but you ultimately have to deal with whatever that negative emotion is, that unwanted emotion, because if you don't, that's unsustainable. And for me, I think I demonstrated that in my life by attempting suicide twice because I had emotions that I never dealt with and they were going to drag me down to a point I didn't want to be. So I picked up a few techniques uh, that help me when I need them to create like a mental and emotional distance between, you know, whatever that emotion is and my sort of more objective point of view that's grounded in my core sense of self. Um, So the first tool that I picked up, uh, and this is a good one, is taking a break. If you find yourself in a stressful situation and you're able to take a break, like just getting up and creating like a physical space, a distance can help quite a bit. Um, you know, it'll give you time to like take a breath, um, maybe gather your thoughts a little bit, um, and see the situation more clearly. Because if you're like in the situation and it's overwhelming you, it's going to be more difficult to get out of the situation emotionally if you're still in it. 
So creating the space physically by getting up and taking a break can help kind of reset, you know, your, your mind, your thoughts a little bit. And then also too, like I've noticed if I take a break and I have the ability to like go take a short walk or something, uh, you know, there's all sorts of studies that have shown that exercise and physical activity are good in the long run for improving a person's emotional and mental health. So, you know, even better if you can take a break, take a walk, you know, just go take a lap around the building or something that that goes a long way to helping create some emotional space. At least I found another technique I've learned is, you know, sometimes I'll find a notepad or I'll open the notes app in my phone and I'll start trying to break the situation down or whatever the problem is down into its constituent parts. And I know I've talked about parts from the IFS model, but what I mean here is reducing a problem down to like it's, it's bullet points. Like what are the things that make up this problem? Cause if you look at the whole problem, it can be intimidating, but if you break the problem down into pieces, you know, reduce it down to its, its parts, then it can becomes less intimidating and you can deal with each of these parts more easily. Um, now if it's something like a larger problem, you know, for instance, I'm not happy with uh, this thing in my life. I don't like how things are going. That for me, I journal, and journaling—that's something I've been doing uh, since I was a teenager. And you know, writing for nobody but myself has helped me get my thoughts out of my head, helped me be more objective about them. Again, it's it's similar to like taking a break and creating that physical space, but putting something on paper or on a screen where you can see it will help you be able to like visualize that thing and, and sort of like implies that it's separate from what's going through your mind. Um, and sometimes, you know, just writing things out has helped me see things more clearly and given me ideas about a situation, kind of connect the dots with my other thoughts and other things that might be going on. Um, I genuinely believe that journaling um, and note-taking has made me a more well-rounded person and a more organized person. And it, it took me a while to get there, you know, with my emotional management, but this is absolutely a tool that has been useful for me since I picked up all these other things that I, that have helped me. Um, and this, uh, another thing, another technique I've learned is, Sometimes it's helpful instead of journaling, like especially if you're more artistically inclined to try to draw the thing that's stressing you out or troubling you. Uh, you know, what is what does that unwanted emotion look like in that particular moment? You know, does it look like a person? Does it look like a situation that you r- recall from your past? You know, does it remind you of something that you've experienced before? Um Like journaling, I've used drawing at times, you know, drawing out different problems and what they look like to help uh, get those things out of my head and better understand what they are. And, and, you know, having those visuals sometimes when you draw something out, there have been moments when I'll draw something out and I'll be like, oh, that that's not so intimidating. That's not so bad. So it kind of takes the power away from the emotion and gives it back to you and your core self. Uh, And then another technique. I've learned to appreciate is having a sense of knowing when my emotions are affecting me physically. And if you've ever had like a tension headache 
or, you know, tight shoulders, tight neck um, in a stressful situation, then you know what I'm talking about. For me in particular, when I'm in a stressful situation, I tend to get a lot of tension in my neck. Uh, it gets to be pretty uncomfortable. And, you know, take a moment to relax, like when you notice something happening. Oh, and that reminds me too. When I used to have way more frequent panic attacks, I would notice that my chest would start to tighten and, you know, I, I, my breathing would get shallower. And there were even times when I like, it just became automatic. Like I would just like, couldn't control my breathing. So, you know, there are those physical signs you can learn to recognize if you sit in your core self long enough and, and you learn how to pay attention. Um, and, you know, I went through some, I went through a little bit of training on like some relaxation exercises. Um, I'm hoping, you know, if you look around more on YouTube or, you know, if you talk to a therapist or somebody that maybe they can give you some physical relaxation exercises, like, you know, just some stretches you can do, or like just even like rotating your feet, like at your ankles, um, you know, that can help relieve some tension in your body, but just kind of sitting and taking like a, physical checklists, like an inventory of where pain might be in your body, like where the tension is and trying to relax those things. That's, that's helped me quite a bit when I, when I in a period, especially like if it's an extended period of stress, um, just finding ways to relax. And then the final thing, and this is something, an exercise that's helped me quite a bit. And it's to my understanding, it's one of the most useful tools and one of the easiest, uh, well, I call it a tool. It's one of the easiest techniques to master if you're trying to calm yourself and relax, like in the moment. Um, and I'll do it with you. If you don't mind, of course, if you're, if you're willing to do it with me. So deep breathing. Uh, I read somewhere long ago and, you know, I was told this by a few therapists, you know, breathing, getting more oxygen to the brain is one way to help in a moment of stress and it helps to immediately bring down, uh, reduce your stress levels. So the technique I was taught and I'll do it just one time, but if you take a deep breath, just like fill your lungs up as much as you can. And then you hold it for 10 seconds and I I'm going to breathe in again and hold it for 10 seconds. So it'll be 10 seconds of silence here. And then you exhale. And then, of course, you know, generally you want to be like in a relaxed setting, like maybe you'll be seated. But anytime you're experiencing a lot of stress and you don't know what else to do or you have no other options, like you can't take a break or that sort of thing. Try the deep breathing and do it several times. Like I, I did it just the one time there. But, you know, if you do it at least three times, for example, it can make a big difference. Now, you don't want to do it so much that you hyperventilate, but uh, I'm. I've noticed like that was one of the easy tools I learned early on in my journey to improve my, my emotional management. Um, so yeah, breathing, I, I would recommend on top of all these other techniques I just mentioned. So to wind down here, I, I wanted to share just a few more additional tips. Actually, I have four additional tips that, you know, if, if you're interested in learning how to love yourself more now that 
I, I think these would help you, or at, at least these are what helped me get some immediate relief that I could kind of build on over the long term into uh, kind of a, a better state of being that I was happier with. The first thing that helped me was, you know, if if you sense that you've you're going through a streak of bad days, like bad emotional days. Is start thinking about each day in its parts, like going back to the idea I was talking about a little bit ago about, you know, breaking problems in their parts. You can break your days into parts as you reflect on them. There was a point when I was uh, beginning my serious recovery, uh, learning how to manage my emotions better when I would take a day hour by hour and kind of assess my mood uh, during those times so that when I got to the end of the day, I could reflect and think, well, you know, those hours were good. Those hours were not so good, but it gave me a more informative picture of the day rather than saying, oh, that day shot. I messed that day up. You know, like having those streaks of hours, like if you have a streak of good hours, you can be prouder of that than saying, oh, I had a bad day when, you know, there was actually some good stuff that happened. And then you can kind of build your strength up to maybe you look at days on their own or even blocks of a day like morning, afternoon, evening, and night or whatever your schedule is like. So you can just take groups of hours and then you can move on to like whole days where I remember when I was trying to practice this technique, I would get kind of excited when I would recognize I had like a streak of good days. Kind of going back to the the chart I was talking about before, where I tracked my mood, like I would have a streak of good days and, you know, it made the bad days less impactful because, you know, I would be able to see, well, I had the streak of good days before this bad day. Well, let's just start a new streak of good days again, made it much more uh, tolerable to go through to experience because, you know, there's always the hope that we can start a new streak of good days. I'm at a point now with this technique where, you know, I still have bad days, of course, but they're fewer and farther between. And I'm now stacking good years. Like, the, as I mentioned, 2020 and 2021 were the best years of my life. And it's all because, you know, I put in the work and, you know, these other factors I've talked about. But it's it's cool to be able to say, well, I've had two good years. What's, you know, what's this next year going to be like? That's that that makes it all the more exciting to keep going through this process of learning to love myself more. There's a second technique I've learned, and it's to set a daily goal for yourself that's related in some way to your self-care. This was super helpful for me in particular when I was in uh, the psychiatric hospital, uh, just trying to recover from what I was going through. If if you aren't happy with where you are in life, whether, you know, it's just the general state of, you know, things around you or, you know, how you see yourself goal setting, uh, at least for me, it it made a big difference. So, you know, it can be things as minor as, you know, today I'm going to get up and take a shower and brush my teeth or today I'm going to get online and and look for a therapist. You know, these can be as minor or as major as you want them to be. And, you know, as you start working from small goals, then uh, you can start building up to the larger goals and, you know, that it's totally up to you, but it's good to know, like, especially if you're like tracking all this stuff, like 
I accomplished these goals today. And even if you have days where you, you know, you miss a goal or, you know, you, you just don't feel like doing something or you feel like you've had a setback and you, you know, you've actually lost progress. Just having that overall sense, like you're, you're doing these things and you have done these things and you're building to some long lasting change that for me going through that process, it was really encouraging. So I would suggest that to you as well, like set daily goals for yourself related to your self care. And I sort of hinted at this a moment ago, but the the third tip I would offer is to start documenting what you're going through. So I, I didn't know when I started documenting my mood in May, 2018, just how bad things were going to get. But it's really informative now to be able to see what I've gone through because it helps give perspective, uh, you know, just how much change I've made. So, you know, if you keep track of when things have gone well and maybe when they haven't gone so well, it, it can help you focus, like keep a better sense in your mind of like what's worked well and what hasn't worked so that you can learn from it as you go. And it's, it's also gratifying, you know, especially if you combine this with like journaling and drawing, you know, getting those thoughts out of your head, documenting the process that you're going through, um, keeping a record of your mental health history, you know, even if you don't think you're a good writer or you don't think you're a good artist or, you know, you're not someone that's organized, like just making some effort, like you gotta, like everybody starts somewhere. Um, but I would just recommend documenting what you're going through, you know, whatever form is comfortable for you. So that at the end, you know, when you do reach a point where you feel more relaxed and comfortable with yourself and you love yourself, you can look back and say, look at all the stuff I've gone through. That's, that's kind of cool that I did that. And then the fourth thing, and, you know, I can't stress this enough. If you're going through significant mental illness you need the help of a professional mental health therapist and a psychiatrist. I understand in saying that that's not the easiest process to try to encourage someone to do because, you know, I've been, I've been on that side of looking for a therapist where, you know, either I couldn't afford it or I couldn't find one that didn't have, they weren't accepting new patients so, and then, you know, sometimes you get into a therapist, you finally see them after setting everything up and it just doesn't seem like they're the right fit. But, you know, I've been through, uh, like, I've been in therapy for a lot of my adult life and I've seen several different therapists. I'm currently seeing a therapist, even though I'm doing well. Um, but you, you need a professional that can help you navigate what you're going through just even if it's just to talk to, to have somebody to listen, um, you need that professional level of support. Like just talking to family and friends and such isn't enough because, you know, looking back, you know, I, there were times when I thought I had a handle on my problems or that I wanted to face them on my own or that I should face them on my own. But you know, if I can use this metaphor of like being in a rowboat in my head. So like, I felt like I was, you know, looking back, I felt like I was in a rowboat and I was just kind of like rowing in a circle, paddling in a circle of my own thoughts. 
Like I wasn't going anywhere. I, I wasn't getting any new information. I was just kind of stirring what I already had retained in my mind about myself and about, you know, how things should be. But it takes a professional, somebody that has training that can help guide you and like steer you out of those intrusive thought cycles and get you in a direction that you actually want to go. So what I'm saying is, you know, if, if you're not in a good place mentally and you want to learn how to love yourself, you, you absolutely need a mental health professional. And I know that's, that's hard to suggest, but it, it really, I believe it is necessary. The good thing though, about, I mean, one of the unfortunate, but I guess unexpected benefits of the COVID-19 pandemic is a lot of mental health professionals now offer telehealth options. So you can visit, you know, have schedule appointments and things with people who are trained um, in mental health care uh, and you can do it remotely. So that opens up your options for you know, seeing people from all over the place, like, especially, you know, if you live in like a, a more rural area or, you know, if you're looking for someone that specializes in a certain model of mental health care, like, you know, I've been talking about IFS, uh, you know, you can, you have a broader range of professionals to search through now. Um, so I don't know. It's really encouraging. I know, I know here in Baltimore, there are a lot of uh, therapists and such now that are offering mental health and psychiatrists too, uh, mental health uh, through the telehealth uh, options. And then also uh, another site I can recommend that comes to mind is uh, it's a site called betterhelp.com. So it's the words betterhelp.com. That's sort of like an online portal where you can go and search for practitioners from all over the world. Um, who do specialize in different models. Um, so that kind of broadens your options a little bit. Like if you're here in the Baltimore area, listening to this, um, it can be hard to find a local uh, practitioner, but yeah, just, just give us, give a, give betterhealth.com a look. If, if you're looking for an option and can't find one locally. And then finally, the, the final tip I would suggest for learning how to love yourself now is, you know, if, if, you're looking for a positive reason. Like I discussed my positive reason for living and you know, your usual usual reasons that you've had in the past haven't been as effective lately as they were before. Try remembering an inner part of yourself from your past. Like I did with, you know, I was talking about little Josh earlier, like who is, who would be your little Josh? Maybe there's a little version of you that, you know, if, if you can imagine them being beside you today, like how would you treat that little version of you? I imagine you would be a lot kinder and more patient and more compassionate and everything like your core self uh, with this little version of you compared to how you are with yourself. Normally, if you're experiencing some uh, significant mental health issues. So you know, having that little version of me personally, I never experienced, you know, being able to project like that before and see myself more objectively. And now at a point where, you know, I learned to love that little Josh. And by doing that, practicing with this imaginary version of myself, I'm able now to love myself in the present. I appreciate so much more about me that I was never able to in the past. So 
try finding that little version of you that you can sort of empathize with that maybe you never thought about before. <laughs> well, I've talked a lot, but that's this episode of the best con. Um, I hope I've said at least one thing that might help you learn to be kinder or more loving to yourself. Um, I, I don't think you necessarily have to be kind or loving to yourself to be kind and loving to others, but being kind and loving to yourself first certainly would increase the likelihood of you being nicer to other people. So, you know, there's a lot of reasons to want to treat yourself better. And I hope I've helped with that. I'd be curious also if you have a story of your own journey with mental health and mental illness, if, you know, where you are on that journey, you know, are there things that you've learned that have helped you or are there things you're still struggling with? I'd be interested to hear. I mean, maybe we can learn from each other. Uh, you can leave a comment on YouTube or you can subscribe to the newsletter at bestkindpod.com and reply to any of the emails that you receive, especially the, the welcome email. You can send me a message uh, about your mental health journey. Um, I'd certainly appreciate it. But I'll be back next month uh, with another guest on The Best Kind. Until then, uh, thank you for being kind today. Take care.